Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Live to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com, or you can type a few more characters and go straight to the blog at blog.speculist.com. At The Speculist and on Fast Forward Radio, we talk about the future. We talk about emerging technologies and emerging possibilities, We talk about what we think is going to be a very bright future, one that we'll all very much want to live to see. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me, as always, is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. How are you, Stephen? Hey, Phil. I'm doing great, man. You doing all right? Well, as as I was mentioning before uh, we started the show, I've actually been tracking the progress of a cold that I caught uh, last week on my uh, Facebook page. And uh, I, I think uh, I, I'm just about back to super fantastic right now. Okay, well that's great. Well, let me let me clarify. You're tracking the progress of the cold on Facebook, or you caught the cold on Facebook? I'm just kind of trying to figure out how that would have happened. I think one could theoretically catch a virus of some kind on Facebook. But I don't <laughs> see how an actual human being could catch a cold. No, no. Um, you know how you put your your status? It says Phil is, and then blah blah blah. You know, I yeah. I put thinking he's getting a cold, and they're like seriously in the throes of a cold, and maybe coming out of the cold. So, you know, people who've been checking my Facebook page regularly, which I assume, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people <laughs> That's right. do, um, ha- have been following the progress of the cold, and I'm, I'm delighted to report to them all. Uh, I'm sure to their great relief that I'm, I'm feeling much better now. And, uh, yeah, this one's, this one's not the one that's going to take you down. That's good. This is not the one, absolutely not. How about you? What's, what's new with you? Well, I uh, spent the last few days uh, camping out with uh, with my kids, and uh, uh, it was one of those it was one of those experiences. It's 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 a perfect situation for camping because what you do is you you get a cabin so that the wife and maybe the younger kids can sleep there, and then you go down and tent camp, you know, down by the river. Uh, that's where I was, uh, and. Uh, with, with the older kids and uh, everybody was happy that way, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, you know, that's a nice compromise because I guess if the weather gets really severe, then everybody could move into the cabin, right? Well, and we we considered that because I mean we weathered a pretty pretty bad storm out there, but you know uh, the the tent didn't blow down on us, and then and so we didn't have to go in. So we we felt you know like Grizzly Adams after the after the night, we we were able to tough it out. So that's fine. Well, it's not, you know, roughing it maybe is a little bit easier when you know you're kind of working with a net, right? That's right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's always the option of abandoning that and going up to the house, but... Exactly, yeah. You know. <laughs> so we've also got Michael Darling on the line. Michael, are you there? I'm here, good evening. Hey, Michael, you're going to be monitoring the chat room for us this evening, but before you get started on that, 
uh, I wanted to get a quick M report from you on, uh, I believe you attended some kind of robotics competition this weekend. Could you tell us what this, that was all about? Yeah, I, I, in a nutshell, uh, there's an organization um, called FIRST. Uh, I, I'm sure that was an acronym for something or it was symbolic of something, but I don't know anything about it. I got a short notice Friday afternoon from somebody who said, hey, you, you should go see this thing. Is that the local university uh, is actually Friday and Saturday. I made it down there on Saturday. First uh, is an organization founded by Dean Kamen um, that is dedicated to creating events and putting out, uh, how should we say, challenges, although it's not really like an X challenge, um, in order to get uh, high school kids and younger kids interested in engineering and science. And in this case, it was the first robotics competition, not first like it's the first one they've had, but first because that's their name. And um, the deal with that is every year uh, about January, they put out the basic parameters of the robotic challenge and a kit. And from that kit and from that challenge, you build your robot to meet the challenge, and then you have competitions with other teams from other places. The competition here this weekend in Denver was the uh, regional competition. There were teams as far away uh, as Southern Cal and Kansas and I, who, who knows where. And all I can say is I felt like an, a foreign national at my first baseball game where it was kind of cool to watch what was going on and stuff happened, but I have no idea how teams scored and why certain teams started cheering crazy when their robot did something or when somebody else's robot didn't do something. But it was wicked cool. So were the robots interacting with each other? They weren't like playing soccer or any of that kind of thing? Or? Okay, the, the basic uh, field, and they, they even referred to it as a field. There was an MC. He was doing his best to keep the energy up, and my wife leaned over to me at one point with the music blaring and said, yeah, the music kind of gives away the, uh, the parent age group here, the generation. I'm like, I disagree. It gives away the, the age group of the, of the, the special effects and the event well, company that set the, the thing up, but... It was all rock and roll from the late 80s, early 90s, and a very high-energy group of, of high school kids that were doing this thing. But the field uh, looked like a cross between a very small soccer field, and when I say small, maybe uh, 30 feet the long way, and maybe 15 or 20 feet the, stubby, the short way, um, and a small racetrack. And across the center of that was like a large scaffold, and on top of the scaffold were four large balls, two red, two blue. And when I say big, they're like the giant yoga balls or whatever. They're bigger than any game sport ball you would use, um, you know, maybe uh, three feet across, sitting up on this scaffold. And at the beginning of each now, round, robots. robots range from... Uh, one that was looked like a Roomba. In fact, it looked a lot like a Roomba with a little Maserati model glued to the top of it. Um, to one that was like almost as tall as this scaffold that was probably eight feet high. Wow! And the deal was the at the beginning of, of each round, there was there were three teams on each end of the field, and those three teams for that particular round formed either the red team or the blue team. So you had six robots competing in one two-team session. And the start would be what they were calling hybrid mode. It was clear that in hybrid mode, you, they turned the power on, um, and then the, for the first 30 seconds, the robots did whatever they did for 30 seconds. There was no 
controlling of them. There was no, it's just whatever they were built to do for the first 30 seconds, that's what they did, and they could get points. After that, kids would step up or team members would step up to the control panel and now be driving their robots. So the question was, were they interacting? Well, if you count crashing into each other and stealing the ball from each other um, and getting in each other's way, yes. If you count, <laughs> yeah, they were actually... Yeah, that sounds like interaction to me, yeah. Yeah, there was no, like, collaboration in the sense okay. that, you know, it was like a play designed where the two teams would go and do the X and the other one would go... No, and that it was clear you got points for knocking the ball off of the, pla- of the scaffold of, for your color. You got points for putting it back up on the scaffold. You got points for throwing it over the scaffold. If you made a lap of the track, there were little lines on the track where you could tell how far the robot dragged the ball around. And you got points for the ball just going around the track... You also got points for your bot just going around the track. And one team, this little one that looked like a Roomba, was roughly that size, it was clear that they blew off all point possibility from knocking the ball off the scaffold or putting it back up there. Their little thing was fast, stayed out of everybody's way, and just made lap after lap after lap after lap. <laughs> it's got this kind of Quidditch feel to it, doesn't it? I mean, you know, there's two different ways to score going on at the same time. There was at least five different ways to score. Oh, okay. There was at least two ways to get penalties. I didn't figure out the penalties. There was bonus point. I, I'm no, telling you. I, who, who won? Uh, I wasn't there at the end, although I'll say this. the uh, I wouldn't have been able to tell who won anyway because I would have had to go and ask one of the individual competing teams, hey, do you get to go to nationals now? Because this was a, a regional competition. The national competition is coming up uh, uh, second, third weekend in April in Atlanta, and teams from all over the country will converge there to compete on the same, uh, the same challenge. Whatever the rules are for this Quidditch match, it's the same. It, they're, they're doing the same thing in Atlanta. Well, uh, And see, with really the same bot. I mean, you could fix it. You could work on it. There's things you could do, but there is no way you're going to redesign your bot in the next two weeks and have a whole different approach to the Right. To the they're, they're, they're pretty much committed to the, uh, to the robot they've got. Well, good luck to the winners, whoever they were. And, of course, we're big flirts. These were autonomous robots, right? No, no, no uh, remote control was going on, right? Um, no, there was a lot of remote control going on, although it appeared that at least in one case it looked like there was um, that the, the bot actually had the ability to sense the ball because if the ball came what appeared to be its field of view, its big arms would come out and try and grab the ball. But when the ball wasn't in its field of view, it just kind of stood there very zen-like and calm. I was like, that thing is sensing the ball, but I couldn't tell, and I didn't want to go down and interrupt the teams. It was, it was uh, like I said, I was, I was a foreign national at my first sporting event where I didn't know the rules, but it was, it was very cool. It sounds very cool. It sounds, it sounds like a lot of fun. Well, FIRST is a, is a great organization. We had... Uh, uh, Tyler Emerson on the on the program back uh, I think uh, later part of uh, last year talking a little bit about first and I think PJ yep. Manny has mentioned them in the past too. Yep. That's, that's great that they're yeah and and one footnote they uh, they have uh, not only the robot challenge they have other events and and they have a, a for various age groups one of which is the first Lego League uh, it seems like a logical tie in there for the younger kids to build something with Legos that can do stuff. Um, and of course, as we were leaving from the venue, it's a it's the hockey arena for the university. Uh, as we're walking out of the stadium, and the rock music is blaring and it's going crazy, my eight-year-old uh, gets recruited by one of the first reps there, saying, "Hey, do you have a do you have a uh, a team at your school? And would you like one? <laughs> hey, there's your dad. He could be the co- and I, so I'm quite confident we're going to build our own team here, our own school. That is outstanding." 
keep us posted on that as that comes together. That sounds like yep. uh, that sounds like a really cool development. <laughs> Harvey in the chat room asked if you could get nachos at that event. And I'm just answering yes. They had uh, full concessions. <laughs> okay. Well, then, now, then that makes it an official sporting event then. It, it was it was as close to the the cross between a, a sporting event and a rock star, rock concert atmosphere as you could get, um, knowing that at the end it was going to be these machines chasing these balls around the track. I mean, it was it was very it was good. And if you go to the first site, the website, um, they have some videos up there of prior events from prior years, and I, I like the fact that they sort of keep the the, the solutions from around the country. Um, they don't put them up on the website in this year because teams in other parts of the country haven't seen it yet, right? Mm-hmm. But um, or haven't seen that solution. And when they'll get to nationals and they'll see the the team with the giant arms from Colorado or whatever, it um, I like that. But when you look at it, it doesn't do it justice. It doesn't begin to capture uh, either the atmosphere or the the just the the sense of being there when when these kids who have worked on this machine and now are up there and they're going to compete through their machine. It was very cool. Sounds great. Uh, it, it's 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 great to you know one to have a competition. Any any competition like that, of course, is going to be a lot of fun. But one that has has got uh, young people, you know, applying their minds, right? Working on technology, working on making something new happen in the world. That's just uh, that's a that's a terrific combo. So yeah, get that team going, Michael, and keep us posted on that. Will do. All right, well, we're going to send you off into the chat room now, so you can. Uh, you can answer questions about nachos and uh, and let us know uh, when when things get all uh, hot and heavy in there, will you? <laughs> will do. All right. Well, with that, I am going to uh, quickly shift gears, and we're going to bring out our guest this evening. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome Wayne Radinsky to Fast Forward Radio. Wayne uh, started his career as a futurist in 1997 uh, when he was working as a software developer. And he asked the question, why does Moore's Law happen? And has spent the last few years figuring out uh, maybe some answers to that, as we'll get into a little bit later. He was part of the Bay Area Future Salon in Silicon Valley for five years before moving to Colorado and starting the Boulder Future Salon. And he's also a director of the Global Futures Network, which uh, we've invited members of the Global Futures Network to listen this evening and uh, perhaps participate in the chat and call in. We will be taking your calls uh, a little bit later this evening, and uh, for those who'd like to join us, you can join us at 347, I should start with 1-347-215-8972. Wayne, welcome to Fast Forward Radio. Thank you, Phil. So um, let's start with some basic questions. Can you tell us what is a future salon? Um, how did you get involved in the one in uh, Silicon Valley? And uh, what made you decide you wanted to get one going in, in Colorado once you moved to Boulder? Okay, fair enough. A future salon is really just a group of people that meet to discuss the future. And it was started in 2001 by a man named John Smart. He started the first one in L.A., and he started the second one in Silicon Valley, which has been run by Mark Finnern since 2001. Mark Finnern is a guy who works at SAP, um, he's actually from Germany, and he's, uh, he's quite an interesting guy. And that was the one that I got involved with. So we started off as just a little group of eight people that met in a bookstore in San Mateo, and we would discuss various topics related to the future. And that group grew to be um, quite large. It grew to 30 or 40 people on a regular basis, and they had certain topics where the 
where the uh, number of people would get even larger, and had a lot of very interesting speakers come in to talk about various things. So when I got to Colorado, I decided that I would like to do something similar. So I started a future salon in Boulder. How's that? And how would you distinguish, uh, or would you distinguish, between the one that uh, uh, that uh, you have in Boulder and the ones in uh, California? Is it pretty much the same, or is there a, a separate kind of Colorado feeling? Uh, does each one have its own character based on where it is geographically, uh, or, or is kind of interest in the future more of an overriding uh, uh, characteristic? I would say that interest in the future is pretty universal, but each future salon definitely has its own unique character. The one in Silicon Valley, as you might imagine, had a very strong technological focus. So there was a lot of talk about software, hardware, um, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, those types of, types of things. And we've talked about those topics at the Boulder Future Salon too, but we've also had a lot of topics that come from um, I would say more of an environmental uh, perspective. We've talked about issues like global warming and peak oil and overpopulation and stuff like that. And we've had a lot of topics that relate to economics. And um, we've also had a lot of topics that are just kind of social in nature, uh, which is actually true of the Boulder Future Salon, too, because Mark Finneran was interested in, in social topics a lot as well. So we've talked about things like the future of religion and the future of conflict resolution. Um, we had a future of persuasion discussion that, that you were actually at. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> I do remember that. It started as the future of marketing and then turned into the future, yeah, exactly. future of persuasion. One, one of the things that, uh, that, that I would say about the, uh, about the kind of personality of the Boulder Future Salon, and it's the mm -hmm. only one I've been to, so I, I can't compare it to others, but just right. my observation about it is that um, it, it's a very, uh, and I mean this in the best possible sense, Boulder group of people. Um, because I, I, I'm not from Boulder, I work in Boulder, but I, but mm -hmm. I, don't, uh, I, don't, I don't live in Boulder. And um, I always feel like I'm sort of the special guest from the outside world at the Boulder Future Salon. Um, we, we, we talked about uh, we talked about the future of persuasion, which was originally the future of marketing, and uh, right. it, it amuses me to no end how often marketing is brought up as kind of uh, this sort of, if not uh, evil, at least highly suspicious force in the world. And of course, I have to keep reminding the group. Well, actually, I work in marketing, so you know it's okay to talk, but uh, just keep in mind that mm -hmm. you've got one of them amongst you right now. <laughs> now. Um, with that in mind, would you yeah. say that a future salon is more for sharing of information or is it more for advocacy of, of, of particular positions? It's more for sharing of information. Okay. The future salon doesn't advocate any particular um, perspective or point of view or um, it's trying to push the future into any particular direction. And by the way, I noticed on uh, Fast Forward Radio, you say a positive take on the future. <laughs> um, and and I, at the Future Salon, um, well, you've only been to one, so you probably haven't noticed. But oh, no, I've been to I've been to three actually. At the uh, I mean three meetings of this one. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Oh right. Okay. Um, 
we uh, we don't have a positive take on the future. Um, we don't have a negative take either necessarily. Basically, we're we're sort of open to all topics and and willing to talk about anything. So it's very open ended in that regard. So a dystopian would be quite at home uh, mm-hmm. at the Boulder Future Salon, whereas and 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 someone who has more positive take on the future would be as well, I guess. Well, personally, I tend to be suspicious of both the extremely uh, dystopian and the extremely utopian points of view, but we definitely do discuss all of them. So it, yeah, it all comes out. <laughs> yeah, the point the point being that all those different viewpoints are uh, show up, and that the salon does not uh, does not advocate any of those in particular. No, we and don't. And not only does it not advocate a uh, a a particular view of the um, outcome of the future, how happy you know how happy or good that's going to be, um, it also doesn't take a stand on uh, on the specifics of of what's going to happen or, or what should happen, and so I guess. In that way, we would distinguish a future salon and really uh, the Global Futures Network, which is kind of a, an extended uh, salon, and they both they both uh, bear that relationship of uh, kind of growing out of the of John Smart's Accelerating Studies Foundation. Um, that yes, that group John, like John Smart is the guy that started the whole future salon phenomena, right down in and, LA, and and is uh, is one of the founders of the Global Futures Network as well. So they they, they, yep. they, they have that in common. Um, and the Accelerating Studies Foundation, which is the sort of parent organization to to all of them. Exactly. Um, At accelerating.org. <laughs> absolutely. We'll, we'll provide a link to that. In fact, I think we've got a link uh, right now up to the uh, wiki page for Global Futures Network, which should link back to uh, ASF, but we'll, be sure, and, uh, we'll okay. be sure and provide a link to that. One of the things we're hoping to do eventually on Fast Forward Radio is to get John on. Um, I, I feel that uh, we're, we're kind of... We're kind of chasing John Smart down on Fast Forward Radio the way uh, Letterman did Oprah for a, for a number of years and, until he finally got her on. I, I, I don't know if it'll take as long, but uh, we're, we're going to keep trying. Um, All right. Anyway, I, I got distracted there, but my, my, uh, mm-hmm. my question was going to be, so we would distinguish a future salon from uh, some of these other groups that we've had on Fast Forward Radio, such as the World Transhumanist Association mm-hmm. or Foresight Nanotech or the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence or Lifeboat Foundation, um, those groups all have a particular view of the future set of outcomes. Mm-hmm. A future salon is where you go. Fair characterization. Okay. Absolutely. So um, why would, uh, for, for those listening, wh- what's, the, uh, what's the benefit of being in a future salon? Why would, you, why would you recommend it? And why did you feel so strongly about being in one that you got one going yourself? Well, I would say that every person that comes to the Future Salon would have a different answer to that question. Um, I know that for myself, my major reason for getting into the whole futurist thing was coming from my background as a software developer, um, I basically wanted to know what the next killer app is, mainly so I could could write it myself and you know make a lot of money and that kind of thing. <laughs> But well, I, mean, I don't you, think you know, uh, Kurzweil got uh, got his start in futurism the same way. Absolutely, exactly the same reason because he's because if you if you're he says he's an inventor and if you're inventing things, then you want to know 
when when is the right timing? When should you start working on a particular idea, and when should you um, start to sell it in the marketplace? Yeah, you don't want to invent for right now. You want to invent for when the product rolls out in a year and a half exactly. or two years or whenever. Or however long it takes you to make it. Yeah. Exactly, yes. And I must say, Kurzweil has had more success with this than I have. <laughs> I'm not, not doing too good in the killer app department, but that's, that's how I got into the whole futurist thing. And I definitely wanted to uh, explore ideas that could, um, that could lead to the next breakthroughs and the next killer app and where the technology world is going next. But I can definitely tell you that most people who are part of the Future Salon would not give that as their answer. Uh, everybody would have a different answer. Um, for some people, it it uh, stems from concern over the future, over things like um, you know potential uh, bad things that could happen, um, potential downsides to nanotechnology, or or uh, you know all of these environmental issues like peak oil and global warming and uh, population issues. So people who are looking at that, um, they're, they're looking at it from the standpoint of being concerned about, about negative things that could happen. Um, and some people, I think, just like to, um, to try to p- predict the future as a philosophical exercise. So there's all, all kinds of different reasons why, why people uh, get involved in the future salon. Now, from going back to your reason, from the mm-hmm. point of view in, in the in the Kurzweilian uh, uh, effort to to get a handle on the uh, get get a handle on your career, get a handle on what what's coming next in the uh, in in IT development, um, mm-hmm. does that mean that that you would say that you think that the future is to some extent uh, predictable or knowable? Well, I'll tell you. One of the things that I found kind of frustrating is that the the future seems, at least when it comes to technology, it seems very predictable in its sort of um, general, broad, overall picture and very hard to predict in the little details. And the little details are what you need to to figure out to make a lot of money. So (laughs) if you want to be the the next Google, for example, you need to get the little details right, and that's very hard. But, but predicting, but you know, if you look that, at so if, if you look if, at a if, thing like, oh, oh, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, if you look at if you look at a product like Google, you know, people predicted um, things like hypertext all the way back in the 1960s, and people could say, well, you know, we will have you know ways of finding information. You know, nobody used the term search engine back then, but people were describing what we today would call a search engine and the ability to search through millions or billions of documents. Um, but nobody knew that it was, would be called Google and that it would work by crawling this thing called the World Wide Web um, and so on. Right, so the, you see what I'm getting at here? Like the broad patterns are predictable, but the details are very hard to, to, to get. One of the things John Smart talks about is the distinction between um, uh, developmental and evolutionary change. Is that, is, that the, mm-hmm. is that the kind of distinction you're talking about? Or uh, I find his terminology a little confusing, but that is the right idea. Because okay. he, he's basically getting at the idea that there's that an, evolu- an evolutionary process will go in a particular direction, which is predictable, but there's also a lot of randomness, which is um, not predictable. 
Right, and the yeah. randomness is the details, that it turns out that right. it's something we call a search engine, that it's something that, it's, that we call Google. Right. But the developmental but at, at stage the same was time, what they were describing when they talked about hypertext. eBay, Amazon, right. the details of those systems and why they work and make a lot of money, that, mm -hmm. that would have been hard to predict. That's definitely right. hard to predict. You can you can look at you know dozens of other companies that were doing something similar that didn't make it because they yep. just they didn't have this or that detail right. Exactly. But the but the idea rose right the, mm -hmm. the 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 basic idea of what they were talking about made its way uh, made its way to the top. This yep. is fast forward radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're going to open up the phone lines now. If uh, we're we're talking with Wayne Rodinsky of the. Boulder Futures Salon. If you have a question for Wayne or would like to talk about any of the topics we've been talking about this evening, you can call us now at 1-347-215-8972. Phil, this is uh, Michael watching the chat room. Uh, Harvey asks a, a good question, and I, I get, I'm going to ask it two ways. Uh, Wayne, does the Boulder Salon, um, in trying to discuss the future, try to uh, figure likely futures or is that something that GFN in general is, you know, is, is the probability of, hey, this is really likely, that's worth discussing, versus this is hardly likely at all, that's not what we're going to discuss. Is that something that's going on? Well, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure what the person is getting at, but whenever you're talking about the future, you're always talking about probabilities. It's never possible to predict things with absolute certainty. So it's not like we have a, a crystal ball, you know, or an oracle, and we can tell you exactly what's going to happen. You know, we can predict the phases of the moon, but <laughs> when it comes to more substantive, substantive issues, we're always kind of um, trying to guess what's likely to happen, what isn't likely to happen. I, I can say that, that it, that's at always Boulder a part of the conversations. At, at Boulder Future Salon, uh, we, we often close with with Wayne doing a roundtable. Once around, everyone getting a, a final word. So everyone gets to say what they think the future of that particular area will be, which is uh, which is fun, and and everyone gets to throw something in, uh, no matter how outrageous or wacky um, others might view that. And, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience of throwing out outrageous and wacky ideas because I think that's uh, loads of fun. Uh -huh. Michael, did you say there was another question, or uh, you had two ways of phrasing it? Uh, well, just one was that is that something that that the GFN in general, whatever whatever salon, is that part of the the sort of the mindset, or is that even something that Boulder's doing? Oh, so 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 the question is, um, do do uh, future salons generally make an issue over whether what they're talking about is a, is a, is a likely future? Um, right. And and I think Wayne, what you said about probabilities would apply across the board. Yeah, I think so. Uh, obviously, you you have certain people that come in with a certain point of view, and they they feel very certain that this will happen or that'll happen, or they'll feel certain that something won't happen. But I would say the the future salon format in general is is always looking at the probabilities of things and looking at multiple possible scenarios. I think y'all touched on something just a second ago. As you had asked earlier, Phil, you know. Why do future salons? <laughs> Fun was mentioned just now. I think uh, that's a. I think that would be a big part of it. I mean, this uh, getting together and talking uh, futures. Uh, you know, if it's anything like uh, participating on the Speculist or Fast Forward Radio, fun's a big part of it. I, I think so. Um, <laughs> the the, uh, the opportunity to talk about these kinds of things is not something that. Uh, 
many of us get in our everyday lives. Uh, yeah. The day job doesn't really uh, encourage uh, wild speculative predictions, does it? Depending, depending the day on what your day job, job is, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, Wayne, I don't know. Do you get do you get many opportunities uh, outside of the future salon to talk about these things? That's personally why that's why I blog and why I do the podcast because I I love uh, in 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 my day you know. job we're always focused on what we're doing right now and what we're doing this week and it's always you know it, it's always looking short term and not long term. The, the the fun thing about the future salon is that you can sit back and you can take a really long term view of what's going on. And and I think the other thing that makes it fun is that you get such a uh, just mix of perspectives on it. Um, yeah, speaking speaking as somebody who takes a very uh, optimistic view of the future, I, I find it great fun to, uh, to to come up against the polar opposite view and and mm-hmm. uh, th- those who uh, those who see the risks and see the dangers and and see those as almost uh, uh, almost certain to to win out. Uh, you know that makes for some uh, that, that makes for some really uh, exciting conversation I think because you you get to test your ideas and um, you, you get to test your own ability to make your case. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there, and I also think it's a lot of fun meeting people that come from really different walks of life. You know, because you know at the day job most people are you know related to software development in one way or another. And at the Future Salon, I can meet people like, you know, we have a guy who's going to come in. I don't know exactly when he's going to talk, but we have a guy, Lauren Cobb, who's going to talk about political simulations that he does. So um, as part of the uh, National Defense University, he does these political simulations of different groups in especially Latin America. He focuses primarily on Latin America. And that is just so, um, such a different, you know, part of life from where where I usually work. Um, Last December, we had uh, David Grinspoon come in, and he's a planetary astronomer. He came and talked about the Fermi paradox. So that was, you know, another thing that was completely different where we can look at at things in a very um, cosmological sort of, you know, philosophical point of view. Wayne, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, real quickly, what is the Fermi paradox? The Fermi paradox, uh, to put it as probably quickly as possible, is the question, uh, why aren't aliens here? If, um, if, uh, life, if life is something that arises spontaneously anywhere in the universe, then at some point, if any spacefaring civilization came into existence anywhere in the galaxy, they would colonize the whole galaxy and um, I guess it's a few tens or hundreds of millions of years, but it's pretty short time on a cosmological time scale. So you would expect those people to be here now. If, if there was a sizable number of right. technological so you, civilizations, yeah. You, yeah, you were mentioning the, uh, the von Neumann probe earlier in the... Before, in the, before the program started, we were talking about those a little bit, the self-replicating von Neumann... Uh, uh, robotic probes out exploring the universe. How do, how do those relate to the Fermi paradox? Well, see, if, um, if, our, if our civilization develops um, artificial intelligence and, and we develop robotics that can go up into space and self-replicate, then it would take only a short period of time in, in a cosmological timescale for those 
self-replicating robots to colonize the whole galaxy. So, but then you run into the Fermi paradox, which is if that's possible, why aren't self-replicating robots from somebody from somewhere else already here on Earth? They're, they're not here. Well, the, and, the, and, the, and the fact that they aren't here <laughs> would tend to indicate that we might be alone in this galaxy. They might be, and that's the, that's that's the whole question. That, that's what the Fermi paradox is all about. So yeah. uh, there isn't there isn't really an answer to it. You, it's just a philosophical uh, uh, exercise. Yeah. So and we had him. We had him. Uh, David Grinspoon's his name. He wrote a book called uh, Lonely Planet, which is a pretty uh, pretty good book. I've been reading it, and uh, he explores all of these uh, issues in in a lot of depth. And, and in addition, he tells you a lot about our solar system, so it's pretty interesting. He came Sounds and like talked in November. Lonely Planet by? Lonely Planet. And the author was? Uh, David Grinspoon, G-R-I-N-S-P-O-O-N. Lonely I read another Planet. good book, and I, I, the author escapes me, but the other one was Rare Earth. Same subject. Also um, on the topic of the Fermi paradox. That's right, and and why we very well may be alone, at least in this galaxy. I actually thought Rare Earth was more about the anthropic pr- principle, but I haven't read it, so I should. I related concepts, aren't they? Uh, but yeah, you may be right. Yeah, they're kind of related. Now, so. when when you get into Fermi paradox, I think you you end up with broadly. Um, I mean, there, there there are infinite little variations on the possibilities, but the but 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 the two big possibilities are they're there or they aren't, right? That we're 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 alone, or or we're not alone. Um, and and you can I think you can take um, um, we're not alone and break that one down into uh, you know we're the first ones or um, we we don't know how to look for them. Um, we, you know, all of our assumptions about how to look for them are, are wrong, something like that. Or, they're, they're, you know, all of that falls under the, uh, the, the general heading of they are there. And then, and then the other one is that just that very stark um, possibility that there's no one there. And they're, they're both profound philosophical positions, either, either one uh, that, you, that, that you end up with. Was, was there a mood one way or another amongst the... Uh, Boulder Futurist, or did you get a feel from uh, from from uh, David Grinspoon as to which way he leans on the, on the big question? Um, from the group, I don't think there was a, any sort of consensus. The questions were all over the place, mm-hmm. and that was and that was really good. That was a lot of fun. For David Grinspoon, I can definitely tell you that he thinks that uh, they're out there, but of course he has no proof. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. So he's well aware that, in terms of actual evidence, we have we have known. But but so. owing to that position, then he is spending some of his effort, at least, in trying to answer the Fermi paradox. Is that right? He's he's providing. Uh, uh, well, he's supportive of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay. So um, he'd certainly encourage uh, everyone to run the SETI at home software and that sort of thing to help in the, the search. All right. Now we're talking with Wayne Radinsky uh, about future salons and the future. If you'd like to join us, you can call us at one three four seven two one five eight nine seven two. And this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about 
the most recent salon, the one I just missed on okay. uh, Friday, uh, in, in large part because of that cold I was mentioning earlier. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> collapse. How societies choose to fail or succeed was, I, I believe, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the topic. Which, and coincidentally, I, was what Phil was doing. <laughs> I was I myself personally collapsed at the time. Was, was unable to attend. And I would note that uh, in January, excuse me, in February, the topic was the future of education. Right. And in January, it was the future of globalization. So that just mm-hmm. just reading off that list, Wayne goes to the point that uh, that you were making that the the Boulder Future Salon is is very interested in social issues around the future. That that those mm-hmm. kinds of topics come up. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, yes, no, definitely do. T- tell us about the discussion of uh, how societies choose to fail or succeed and uh, the likelihood of uh, uh, of whether the U.S. is uh, on the road to collapse. Was, uh, was well, this, is, this, is on one of, one? this is this is one of our topics that is not a positive take on the future. <laughs> but <laughs> um, there were there were a lot of perspectives that were skeptical that this sort of thing would come about. So um, it's not necessarily negative either. Um, basically, what I did is I presented the ideas from Dmitry Orlov, who's a guy from the Soviet Union who saw the Soviet Union collapse, and he basically draws a lot of analogies between the Soviet Union just before it collapsed in our society today. And so I presented his ideas, and then I basically uh, gave my sort of interpretation or perspective on it, and then um, everyone else gave their commentary on my commentary and so on. <laughs> um, so basically he's saying that the, the Soviet Union had a lot of inertia in its political and economic system that continued beyond the point where it, it was functioning. And the U.S., even though the U.S. doesn't use a um, communist, uh, you know, centrally managed economy, that the U.S. is the U.S. economy is also running on inertia. And there are a lot of signs that it's not working, such as, you know, the trade deficit and the large amounts of money that are spent on unwinnable wars and so on and so on. So I, I don't have time to go through all of his ideas. Um, now, I would think that the... the uh the big objection you would get right off the bat, and I'm sure this is uh, mm-hmm. dealt with in the book, and I'm sure you spent some time on it on Friday, but the, the big objection between drawing a, uh, a comparison between the Soviet Union and the U.S. would be the economic uh, difference, to, to say, well, mm-hmm. the, that was a clearly non-viable economic system, whereas mm-hmm. ours has, has hung in there pretty well for, you know, 225-plus years. Um, yeah. And it, it, it seems to actually work, whereas uh, whereas theirs never did. So they were doomed to fail, and uh, mm-hmm. we aren't. <laughs> would would be I mean that, you know w- without yeah. knowing the specifics of the of his case, that would be the first thing that would come to my head. Now was was that that's, uh, that's, that's definitely the first first thing that would come to anyone's head, I think. But actually, there were a lot of other differences that were brought up in the discussion, such as for example um, that. Uh, the Russian economy is largely driven by oil, whereas the U.S. economy is very widely diversified and and is not dependent on a single commodity like that. Right. 
So, um, and, and, and just a lot of difference in the societies, like um, in Russia, there's a, uh, you know, one guy commented that there's sort of a, a collective uh, PTSD that's hanging over the society from the, you know, 40 million people that died under Stalin and right. the, you know, the other Soviet leaders. And they have a lot of uh, drinking problems and a lot of other problems that kind of fall into that. Um, they also never never had a strong tradition of rule of law. Um, so there's a lot of differences between their society and our society. Um, Dmitry Orlov actually points out a lot of the differences just in, for example, the uh, geographically, like we have all these suburbs that you can only get to by cars, whereas Russia had these compact cities that were accessible by public transportation. And people tended to live live with their extended families, whereas here people people's extended families tend to be scattered all over. So there's differences like that as well. Ralph Peters wrote an article that I, I thought was brilliant uh, back in the late 90s on uh, why countries fail. Um, and he, he said that basically that national success is eccentric. Every, uh, there's there's a there's a million you know there's a bunch of different ways that a country can be successful you know they can uh, they can put their efforts in this direction or in that direction and be success in an entirely different way than the country next door is a success, but that uh, national failure is predictable, and he had he outlined you know seven things that uh, you know if you've got these problems you are you know you're headed towards failure and. Uh, Free flow, restrictions on the information, the free flow of information, subjugation of women, um, inability to accept responsibility for your uh, for collective failure or or individual uh, failure, and on and on. He, he gave reasons why, and uh, um, just a brilliant article, I thought. And it, uh, what was his name again? Ralph Peters, and okay. um, the name of the article was "Spotting the Losers." I'll have a link to it. Great title. Yeah. All right. That's I'll interesting check that when out. you mention the uh, the eccentricity of of what causes nations to fail. I mean, we I've heard theories thrown about that what really brought Rome down was the fact that they drank from lead vessels, right? That they put their water and their wine in lead, and they <laughs> you know yeah. caused sufficient genetic difficulty that they just uh, they, they they couldn't keep going. So so there are an awful lot of factors. Uh, Awful lot of factors mm. involved in something like that. Actually, we had a guy at the meeting who read a book called Are We Rome, which is uh, just about this uh, issue of how similar we are to what happened in the Roman Empire. And they did do things like debasing their currency that um, are kind of similar to what, what's going on now with like inflation and those kind of things. But back then, uh, they actually had metal currency, you know, like coins, and they would actually debase the metals in the coins. So, you know, they were literally, literally debasing wow. the currency. That's where the word so. comes from, I guess, huh? Yeah. Amazing. Exactly. And I would just point out, are we Rome? Well, I don't know. We're we're buying all this stuff from China that has lead in it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, if you're, if you're interested in that question, get the book, Are We Rome? Because uh, there, there certainly are some parallels, but there's a lot of differences, too, so kind of hard to say. Yeah, that's that actually that's one of the great parallels that people have always liked to draw is between the Roman Empire and the and the US. And you can definitely mm -hmm. see the parallels and the uh 
and the differences between the two. But certainly, if we're if we're heading towards that kind of fate, we want to look for the for the warning signs of that. Mm-hmm. This is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're speaking with Wayne Radinsky of the Boulder Future Salon. We'll be talking with Wayne for a few more minutes, and if you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Wayne, you can call us at 1-347-215-8972. So let's talk about uh, these other topics. Um, okay. The future of globalization. Um, I don't know if you saw it just this week. Uh, Peter Thiel had a really interesting um, uh, piece out on uh, globalization. I, I believe it oh, – now I can't remember where it was, but I'll find the link and we'll have it up on the we'll have it up on the show notes. Uh, one, one of the one of the founders of uh, um, eBay um, was was talking about where uh, where the likely investment scenarios are. Okay, if if you're looking if you're looking at the world from the standpoint of I want to know where to put my money. And uh, his take was that there are basically no good bets that don't involve globalization working out. That uh, if, 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 uh, if we don't ultimately sort of become a, a single world economy that, that, that kind of works, um, that, 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 that has us more involved with each other than we have traditionally been in the past, um, then the, the direction is not just for like national failure for the U.S., but ultimately for almost a kind of a global failure. Now, how would that fit into what uh, what the salon uh, was discussing, where, where globalization is concerned? Would would that have been one of the perspectives, or would that be? I I would say that most people, um, or at least the most vocal people, definitely thought that globalization would work out, and that it would uh, would result in a better standing of living for most people in the world. Yeah. Any? Uh, how about interesting um, dissenters on that? Anyone thinking that we're heading for hell in a handbasket because of all this globalization? Or well, see, I would expect um, that course, out of the Boulder Group. I'm kind of disappointed that that wasn't a. Of, well, of course we ha- we we had our guy who thinks that uh, peak oil and global warming are going to put a real damper on on globalization. Oh, okay. And the the argument there is that peak oil. If you if you raise the price of oil enough, it makes shipping expensive, which makes you know hauling all these container ships from China with all these manufactured goods from China a lot more expensive. So it becomes cheaper to make things locally and cheaper to grow food locally. Uh, right now, we have a lot of food that's shipped in from a lot of places. You can get you know um, you can get grapes from South America and strawberries and that kind of thing. So. So we had one guy who was uh, predicting that peak oil would would put a real put a real damper on globalization. Well, um, I, I I can definitely see that uh, see that argument, and of course, peak oil would then factor into uh, any discussion that you would have about um, whether the U.S. might be headed towards collapse. And, and I guess that that sort of leads to my next question, which is, yeah. um, how much material carries forward from one salon to the next? Do, do you feel like you're having sort of an ongoing conversation where uh, where, the, where the subjects that are discussed one month maybe uh, have a lot to say about the the, the subjects that that come up uh, the following month? Um, I would say that uh, yes and no. There is some topics that come back over and over um, 
but there's a lot of new ideas each time as well. So it's not entirely one way or the other way. It does tend to be an ongoing conversation to some extent because there are certain people that tend to come back over and over. So there's like a handful of regulars. But then there's a lot of people who will only come to a meeting because they're interested in that particular topic. Mm-hmm. So every meeting will have uh, some unique and different people as well. So it's always a combination of the two. Yeah, well, I would th- obviously everybody likes to whip out their hobby horse. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, at any, meet- any meeting I'm bound to probably uh, say something similar to, to what I said before. I would just think that uh, if you're talking about the future of education or the future of globalization one month, and then the next yeah. month you're talking about how societies choose to fail or succeed, it would seem like there's probably some crossover between uh, those kinds. More there than, say, between the Fermi paradox and the future of education, right? That would be a... That would be a harder line to draw, probably. Um, actually, I would say that there's more overlap between the Fermi paradox and the collapse discussion. Oh, that, that may okay. be kind of hard to see, but at the Fermi po- paradox, paradox discussion, we talked about things like, you know, what happens if a civilization destroys itself in a nuclear war? Or what happens if a civilization, once it reaches a certain point, um, you know, there's a certain probability of getting hit by an asteroid, right? So... <laughs> so the Fermi paradox. Uh, okay. So you talk about you talk at the Fermi paradox talk. We talked about well, maybe the answer to the Fermi paradox is that civilizations don't travel through space because before they get to that point, something catastrophic happens. Collapse. And at the collapse at the collapse meeting, we also talked about some of these catastrophic possibilities. Um, and we didn't talk about them at the future of education. Okay. Okay. Well, there you go. Future so. of education. We talked about things like, um, well, the thing that strikes me the most is uh, there was a person, uh, Sarah Kelnhofer, at that meeting who talked about how uh, in America there's a lot of people who don't value education and who, uh, are, who, who aren't enthusiastic about going to school and, and not enthusiastic about learning and that it's not considered, quote-unquote, cool. And we also had a guy there named Jim who talked about how the U.S.'s major exports are entertainment and weapons. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, gee, is there a connection there? You know, like maybe if entertainment is what we value as a society, then maybe you don't want to learn a lot about math and science, say. Maybe that's not, not cool. So... So it was much more, much more a, a sociological type of discussion. Absolutely, yeah, I can Damn. see that. Okay, so, yeah. so that, but that just goes to prove the point where you would expect to see the lines, lines drawn, they're not drawn, mm-hmm. and where I wasn't looking for them, they were. So Fermi paradox ends up being related to uh, the collapse of society, and education right. uh, maybe bore more relationship to the discussion about the future of persuasion, where I think some of those right uh, or, or or economics. Yeah. Okay. Where some of those same topics had come up. Yeah. Well, and now that we've uh, now that we've talked about uh, the collapse of society and how uh, the Fermi paradox could be proof that uh, that uh, collapse is inevitable, I think we've established that we don't always take a positive spin on the future here on Fast Forward Radio. But, um, Michael, any final questions from the chat room? 
Ah, uh, man, we've been all over the map in the chat room, but um, I didn't bring it back in because uh, it, it was hard for me to establish a context in which it wouldn't be, uh, well, I think we were borderline illegal once or twice, but mostly it was just, you know, <laughs> rude. Yeah, just filter out the blue material. That's all we ask. To do. So, I, have a, I have a question. I mean, if someone were interested in uh, establishing their own local uh, future salon, uh mm-hmm. I would think, Wayne, you you would be uh, the guy to talk to. Um, should they contact you through the uh, Boulder Future Salon webpage? How would they, how would they go about getting advice from you as to how to start their own local chapter? They can they can do that. Although um, they can also contact the ASF at accelerating.org too. Okay. So In fact, I believe there are resources there on accelerating.org for. Uh, for, for those who are interested in um, in starting their own future salon, let's just uh, put that into the context of when you got yours going. Wayne, what what's the job description? Um, how how much time of a commitment is it for you, and and how difficult was it to find people to participate in some of those kinds of things? Well, it's more of a time commitment than it looks, but uh, it's fun. So. <laughs> um, it is it it is always a challenge finding uh people to come in and talk about interesting topics and uh so yeah i'm i'm always looking for for new people and people with interesting perspectives and people who want to come and talk about a particular topic or who just want to come and listen or participate in the discussions afterwards and and how did you initially find people to participate in the salon not just the uh, speakers, but the actual uh, salon attendees, the participants. Well, <clears throat> I did a number of things. I uh, the the main thing I did was I piggybacked. We we hold the future salon at Boulder Bookstore, and I piggybacked on some of the bookstores' events. So, uh-huh. for example, when Seth Lloyd came to talk about quantum computing, right? I went and and passed out flyers and had said, "Hey, you know, let's have a future salon discussion on quantum computing," right? Um, and, and I also did things like I put it on the Internet. On uh, I put it on a website, boulderfuture.org, and I put it on Craigslist, and I put it on meetup.com. And uh, people find us through some of uh, some of these other, through the Internet as well. So a lot of just kind of organic, it sounds like, uh, word of mouth type. Uh, There's definitely word of mouth as well. Uh, people who like it, they'll bring their friends and, and I don't know, in my yeah. case, I found it through Accelerating.org. So uh, any, anyone who's looking for one in their area, you might start there and just see if there already is one, um, because there are mm-hmm. several, uh, a couple dozen, I would say now, probably. Uh, There's a whole bunch area. now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there are quite it's, a few. Uh, it's catching on everywhere, all over the country, and, right. and even a few outside the country. Good stuff. Well, and, and that... Uh, and, and, and that sort of leads back to the Global Futures Network, why, why that group got put together was kind of a uh, uh, sort of a clearinghouse for people with all kinds of different perspectives in the future, whether they're in salons or uh, degree programs or, or, or other, to, to, to have an opportunity to, uh, uh, to interact with each other. Well, Wayne, we thank you very much for being with us this evening, and uh, we, hope that, uh, we hope that we'll be able to have you back on uh, Fast Forward Radio again in the, in the near future. Okay, thank you. All right. All right.
Okay. We want to let our listeners know that we'll have links to all the books and the topics and everything that we've talked about tonight uh, at uh, at the Speculist in the show notes. So uh, check that out. All information discussed should should be findable there, and uh, we'll also have a link back to our closing music, which will be what this evening. We got Thundus Inc. is the name of the uh, of the band, and the song is Bigger Than Us. Bigger than us. All right. Uh, 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 sounds like uh, it could be about the future, actually. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. Well, it's been fun tonight, Phil. It has been fun. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen. Thanks to our guests, Wayne Radinsky, and to Michael and uh, all who participated in the chat room. We look forward to being with you all again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.